I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs for the Pratt Library, and I'm pleased to see all of you here this afternoon. We're uh, happy that the Maryland Historical Society is um, serving as our host this afternoon. I think, as many of you know, the Central Library, the Pratt Central Library, is undergoing a multi-year renovation from top to bottom, and it will remain open throughout the um, these three years or so that the renovation takes place. Um, and the right now, you don't see anything unless you walk around the building. But there's a reverb here. Um, at any rate, we will be doing, probably doing Mencken Day and other events off-site like this um, in the foreseeable future. Um, for the past 20 years or so, can you hear me? For the past 20 years or so, um, the Mencken Memorial Lecture has been introduced by Dr. Carla Hayden, uh, and she, as you know, is the former CEO of the Pratt Library. She began on Tuesday her new job at the, as the Librarian of Congress. And her, her, her official swearing-in by Chief Justice Roberts will be this Wednesday at noon. And I think there's a link to, um, uh, on the Pratt's, um, Facebook page, there's a link to the actual cam that you can, so that you can watch it. So anyway, um, we miss Dr. Hayden terribly, but um, we, for those of us who've worked with her, we know that um, she's the best person for the job as a librarian of Congress. They need her. Uh, <laughs> um, and also, one other thing I wanted to mention was that at her going away party at the end of August, um, the library board named the annex, the, the new part of the library, the central library where the Mencken Room is, that is now called the Carla D. Hayden Wing of the central library. So when, so you will see that if you go over to the Mencken Room um, this afternoon, and you'll see that her name is there. So we will be able to remember her uh, forever. So uh, it's my pleasure to, enter, to bring back to the podium, Bob Brueger, who's going to introduce Laura Claridge this afternoon. Thank you, Judy, and uh, all best wishes to Carla. Uh, I'm pleased to introduce this afternoon our speaker, uh, who grew up in Clearwater, Florida, escaped the heat, uh, heat and humidity of Florida, uh, in favor of College Park, uh, eventually graduate uh, training at College Park, uh, working with Carl Bodie, uh, the famous Mencken biographer, American Studies uh, uh, founder of a profession, uh, the specialty, uh, American Studies, I think we can say, uh, went on, uh, Laura went on to teach at uh, Converse and Wofford Colleges in South Carolina, had uh, is also taught at the Naval Academy, where she uh, won tenure. Uh, somewhere along the line, Laura began to realize that academics who are truly gifted and ambitious and sensible go on to write trade biographies. 
books that sell, at least books that sell to uh, general readers. And uh, as an editor uh, in my own uh, professional life, I wish I'd uh, gotten in touch with Laura quite some time ago. She has written uh, extremely uh, well-received biographies uh, of Emily Post and Norman Rockwell, which is a terrific subject, uh, and uh, most recently, uh, amidst uh, appearances on television and writing pieces for the Wall Street Journal and other uh, newspapers, uh, has completed uh, a biography of Alfred A. Knopf's wife, which is the wrong way to put it. Absolutely. Uh, and <laughs> and Laura will now tell us exactly why. It is Blanche Knopf. Please welcome Laura. I have I have what are now called um, deficits, and one of those deficits is walking carefully. So I have to I have to sometimes call upon somebody. You may be called upon. Be aware to help me walk. Thank you all for having me here, this what turned out to be a really wonderful, beautiful, bright afternoon, Baltimore afternoon, with an especial nod to Vincent Fitzpatrick. Where are you, Vincent? Are you here? Oh, of course, of course, well, of course. I'm sorry, I'll have to tell him this in person. The curator of all things Mencken. Henry himself would have said that Vince is on the side of the angels. And as you know, Henry was a hard person to convince that pure goodness existed. Though I live in New York's Hudson Valley, I am no stranger to the Enoch Pratt and its endless treasures. When I was getting my PhD many years ago, I was hired as a research assistant for the late and great founder of the Minkin Society, Carl Bodie. My studies were in British Romantic poetry, far afield from Minkin and other American writers. Gradually, however, working for Carl, I came to regret having neglected my own national literature. And I would return years later to write about icons of American culture. I think, in fact, that it was when I was writing a biography of Emily Post, born in Baltimore, that I turned, that, by the way, I remember that I was sorry to find out that, that the tag that, Buffalo, that um, Baltimore has now, um, Charm City, is that right? Was after, she doesn't get credit for that. <laughs> I, was, I think it was when I was writing that biography of Emily Post that I turned to Vince for personal help locating a Baltimore Sun newspaper article and photo from 1945. In what seemed to me minutes, Vince located the microfilm of my biological birth mother, Camille Warrington, whom I'd never seen except at my birth, 
and uh, who in 1945, the time of this photo, was a southern heiress living in Baltimore, who then moved to Clearwater, Florida, where seven or eight years later she married very briefly a handsome, heroic Marine who would be my father, the man who raised me, himself a damaged veteran who had fought and was wounded on three major Japanese islands, including Iwo Jima. Both Camille and my father, independently of each other, coincidentally died at age 50. The drama of Camille's story was far more mundane, heard all over the place, than that of Blanche's. But more to the point, Vince's finding my mother made it clear that he, Vince, is a prince among men. Thank you for this and for so much more invaluable research, Vince, over there. (laughs) In many ways, it is hard for me to imagine a less likely long-term friendship than that of Henry Mencken and Blanche Knopf. To show equal familiarity, I'll call them both by their first names. Even their self-presentations were at complete odds. Henry, at times sloppy, his voice either stentorian or occasionally bellicose. While Blanche sounded benevolent, her low voice usually praised as melodious, some said seductive. The plot proceeds like this. During the spring of 1915, Blanche Wolfe, soon to be Knopf, left Manhattan with her fiancé, Alfred, for a day visit to Baltimore in order to meet Alfred's recently made friend, reporter Henry Mencken. The Knopfs were starting a publishing house, and Henry seemed to have some smart ideas for it. Blanche and Henry sensed from their first meeting that theirs would be a lifelong friendship. They, quote, instantly recognized their kindred spirits, this according to Alfred, after both of the the main characters had died. Oddly, in light of their eventual reputations as highly sexed individuals, There is no suggestion in any of Blanche and Henry's correspondence, diary, letters, etc., that they were ever sexually interested in each other, however unlikely that must have seemed to those acquainted with both libidinous parties. When they began their friendship, Henry was the better educated, certainly in the typical subjects of Baltimore polytechnic, though he had little interest in engineering and mechanics. Blanche turned out to be a natural student, an omnivore who learned fast at Gardner's, a fancy but not exclusive boarding school in Manhattan. Gardner's was an establishment for young ladies where writing and learning French were at the top of the agenda, which ended with what today we would consider 12th grade. The social status of Blanche and Henry was more or less equal, though Blanche, through marriage, was nominally wealthier than Henry. Their parents were all 
I guess, lower middle class, uh, lacked formal education, but they worked very, very hard. Unlike Henry's father, who had mistakenly assumed his son would follow him into the tobacco business, where he had made lots of money, Blanche's parents hoped that she'd marry a man of money, which she basically did, with the unusual stipulation on her part that she be Alfred Knopf's equal work partner as well as wife. Henry's education encouraged him to read, while Gardner's finishing school compensated for their ladylike, lackluster syllabi with what to Blanche was a magical six-story winding staircase of books, motivating her to spend any free time sitting at the bottom of the spiral reading. And here I need to thank another librarian, uh, who is uh, David Smith, retired from the New York Public Library. Where are you, David? Right there. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, yes, and he found this very difficult uh, to locate material for me. Not when he not when he was working there, but afterwards he said, I'll do it for you. And he went over there and got it. So I thank him. <clears throat> you only find, I think, how important librarians are once you start writing uh, works that require a lot of uh, knowledge of history or of human beings' lives. Suddenly they become the most important the ones that you always want to thank and return to and inevitably are in the acknowledgments. From this staircase, this winding staircase, and I even saw pictures of a beautiful white winding staircase, Blanche, from this staircase, Blanche consumed in French the very books that she would eventually publish in English. Madame Bovary, Manon Lescaut, Nana, Mademoiselle de Maupin, all through Henry's suggestion. He helped her get them translated into English during her publishing company's early years. They were free of copyright then. A major reason for these early choices. They weren't exactly naturals for a company starting out. Minken even helped her find a top translator for Nicholas Gogol's Russian, or some people say it was actually Ukrainian, Taras Bulba, also out of print and with very few takers. They didn't have a lot of competition for that book. Published by the Knofs because of the dead copyright and because the public would think, at least, that the young Knofs must know what they were doing, daring to debut with such exotic titles. 1916 was the first full year of the publishing house, Alfred A. Knopf. Blanche's name was unaccountably left off of the door. She'd been promised otherwise as they created their company. And now Alfred explained that Blanche, the name, would be added to their sign later. There just wasn't enough room at the moment. Its original name, of course, remains Henry and Blanche were in sync regarding their literary judgments, though within several years of their friendship, Blanche proved, I believe, the more sensitive reader of the two. After all, Henry was a writer. Blanche was an editor, and later almost exclusively a publisher. 
in any case, called upon to judge books, not to write them, as Henry did. At one early point, after she had gotten into the habit of passing on to him unsolicited manuscripts that people just sent in, irritated, he wrote her that, only if you read them first will I help you out. He didn't like wasting his time, he reminded her. That was her job. She could create her own slush pile. At the time that Blanche and Alfred formally opened Knopf in 1916, there were essentially no other women publishers in the country. Elizabeth Peabody, who among other literary feats, had opened a bookstore in Boston, had died the very year that Blanche was born, 1894. As you might expect, given the times, Blanche would be patronized in the early 20th century world before the Jazz Age made it impossible to keep women in their place. Knopf's first poultry 29 book list in 1916, that was their entire list, 29 books, nonetheless established that the new kids on the block were to be taken seriously. Even the expensive artsy bindings that their small savings allowed announced that Knopf, though it wasn't clear if that meant Alfred or Alfred and Blanche, were here to stay. Alfred was never as involved in the literary side of Knopf as in the business end, and sometimes it was as if Blanche and Henry were in their own private partnership, each thinking of ways to address the other's professional needs. In 1917, when Henry was worried about being hunted by the current vice squad for public decency, he was relieved when Blanche promised that Knopf had his back. She was proud of him, and she shared his position against censorship. However much his legal defense might cost, nothing, it turned out, the case was dropped, she'd stand with him. Henry had actually had the audacity in his recent 84-page A Book of Prefaces to criticize Henry James and Mark Twain for their puritanism and intolerance, Blanche proudly told her friends. And it was Blanche who talked Henry through his idea of writing about the differences between the Queen's English and good old standard American agreeing that this was a substantial project worthy of at least one book. In 1919, Henry finished The American Language, a 374-page manuscript, making it clear that American English was a handmaiden to the British no longer. The American Language was meant as a declaration of independence from England's dialect, as Edmund Wilson would say, for the first time, Americans were allowed to trust their own language. After all, Henry had been inspired by the country's new ways of talking, the soldiers returning from the war carrying their by now hybrid language. 
But Henry was not averse to following a less serious, perhaps unhealthy, trail in Manhattan throughout the Roaring Twenties and during Prohibition. He teamed up with Blanche and with the bon vivant writer and eventual photographer and all-around bad guy, Carl Van Vechten. The threesome hung out together most often in Hoboken, where Blanche entered the sometimes shady speakeasies on Carl and Henry's arms. The clubs had acquired more cachet than those in Manhattan, whose speakeasies admittedly contained marvelous chefs appropriated from the finest restaurants. But those in Jersey were the wilder clubs, and, quote, meet you in Hoboken had become the phrase of the day. The men knew how much Blanche valued being current and worldly in her personal life. Between them, Henry and Carl introduced her to the raciest social circles of the day, including to T.R. Smith, who owned an extravagant pornography collection. In return, she included them in the the slightly more circumspect parties she threw with guests such as George Gershwin, William Faulkner, Paul Robeson, and her frequent lover, Yasha Heifetz. Van Vechten, too, was a great party giver, and both Blanche and Henry always attended his very wet parties at the Algonquin. On a particularly gay evening, whose party Van Vechten sponsored in honor of his visiting brother Ralph, the crowd was so large it spilled out of the hotel suite and into the hallway. Blanche would later ask Henry if he remembered falling asleep with an actress on his knee, whom he let slide to the floor while he snored loudly enough to rouse the guests in the neighboring suite. Awakening, he was shocked to see a whole new slew of guests, including Tallulah Bankhead. He and Blanche stayed most of the night talking with others about sex, Freud, a a kissing parrot, and sex. There were serious matters as well. By the time of the Knopf's first international sales trip in 1921, Henry had put Blanche in touch with Thomas Mann, urging them to meet. As he predicted, the two clicked, however apart they were culturally. She clearly respected Mann's fiction at once. Knopf must publish Budenbrooks, which would be the first of Mann's work to be translated into English. Henry continued to enable Knopf's list to grow through Blanche. He had helped her acquire those continental authors she wanted, and now he advised her on various of his and George Jean Nathan's Black Mask writers, leading her to launch detective literature by Dashiell Hammett, James Cain, a journalist that Henry had befriended, Raymond Chandler, Ross MacDonald, and more. Signing so many fine writers with assistance from Henry caused Blanche to trust her own clearly fine instincts, 
even when she wanted to take on a young, unknown, mediocre Middle Eastern poet. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Got it. Blanton tweeted that he was a worthwhile commercial talent who would sell books, and Henry was all for Knopf following Blanche's instincts. Though Gabran wouldn't produce anything of importance for several years, and arguably never anything of real literary value. Is that a lope? I didn't know. <laughs> Some people don't think that he was very good. But the, the, the Knopfs loved him because he made their, their whole uh, company for them. He brought in millions. Um, the, it was The Prophet from 1923, which many of us would eventually read in the um, late 60s or maybe early 70s, uh, for its metaphysics, remains one of Knopf's bestsellers today. Is that good news or bad? I'm not sure. Until Henry's stroke in 1948, the day he died, he managed to say, Henry continued to scout for the boutique company, which would publish an average of just 100 titles a year throughout the Knopf's lives. And Blanche and Henry would eventually share ever more personal matters, including the medical Because of his well-known hypochondria, Henry was familiar with the best doctors connected to Baltimore's Johns Hopkins. He eventually persuaded Blanche, in spite of the flurry of fine physicians in Manhattan, to take the train to his city every three months, staying overnight at the Belvedere, the hotel known as the premier lodging in Baltimore during the first half of the 20th century, to visit Henry's doctors on a regular basis. At one point, he tried to convince the Knopfs, only half-joking, to move their company from New York to Baltimore, since it was, quote, more easygoing and had everything from milder weather to better medical care and certainly better Chesapeake Bay crabs. <laughs> On August 27, 1930, the triumvirate of oft-inebriated partygoers came to a halt when Henry finally married his long-term, long-time, often-on-again girlfriend, Sarah Hart. Blanche begged him to dress properly. And with further urging from the local minister, he, quote, put on the dog to Blanche's relief. But while Sarah and Henry seemed blissfully happy, their joy only emphasized Blanche's loneliness. After all, Alfred didn't seem interested in her physically or emotionally. In spite of of violinist Yasha Heifetz, and conductors Leopold Stokowski and Bino Muskowitz, she she yearned to have a regular man of her own. But on May 31st, 1935, such concerns suddenly seemed irrelevant. Henry's wife of five years was dead. 
of what was then called post-tubercular lungs. Blanche had been intending to visit Sarah that very day, but telegraphed Henry instead, shocked at Sarah's death, quote, dazed with grief and having little to say. Two years later, in 1937, aware of Henry's continued sorrow and that his upcoming trip to Florida was an attempt to temper his pain as well as recover from surgery, Blanche, who knew Henry was what today we call a workaholic, as was she, had assigned him a task. She suggested that after his probably prostate operation, at the end of 1936, he should start off the new year by recuperating on Daytona Beach, which he did. Blanche would be on her seasonal trip to Europe hunting for books. She was worried Henry would get bored or depressed, so she assigned him a project to find an artist to produce a, quote, truly original lamp. The first Borzoi, which is um, a Russian wolfhound dog, the dog that served as the Knopf logo, to the first truly original Borzoi lamp made on this coast. The lamp was a monstrosity, a melange of shells, pebbles, and rocks, made from an amateur sculptor's idea of a Biedermeyer and surrealist conglomerate. Blanche wrote Henry that it was enchanting, but to hurry back to all who loved him. The lamp was never seen again, surely having done his job by distracting Henry from his sadness, and perhaps playing a joke on what was Henry and some of his friends would call Blanche a Grand Duchess Hilligard to kind of um, jab her at when she was being too um, too mighty. As he's, he's, he and of course Blanche commissioned the lamp, and so the point was that maybe by making it so um, over the top, he was getting back at her. Henry was sensitive to Blanche's emotions as well as she to his. In the summer of 1937, the Knopf's son, Pat, ran away from home after he got a rejection letter from Princeton. He thereupon hitched a ride to Salt Lake City, and Blanche was frightened, then furious, when she realized Pat was trying to make her look absurd, a habit he had inherited from his father, who was actually proud of Pat's theatrics. When the AP reported the boy's safety in Salt Lake City, Henry wrote Blanche a letter, mostly because he knew her insides well enough to realize that she was not only humiliated, but worried she wasn't a good mother. For her benefit, Henry reminisced about his cousin's attempt to get him out west to fight Indians. Young Henry refused the offer, but he recalled six older neighborhood boys taking his cousin up on it. Life to a boy in his teens is certainly not pleasant, he wrote Blanche. He's always policed, and most of the things he's asked to do, to, to do 
are disagreeable to him. Four years later, during the summer of 1941, Pat Knopf would sign up with the Army Air, Air Corps in Albany to be called up only if needed. Blanche was terrified again and called Henry, of course, for solace. He dutifully reassured her and then turned to his own concerns. How were his sales going for newspaper days? At least Blanche could reassure her friend on that front. 6,260 sold in two weeks, 300 more on order. The summer, uh, the summer of 1942, determined to stop worrying about her son and unable to follow her usual schedule to Europe, Blanche had to forgo that annual trip and find new books in South America. She traveled to that country, to that continent for the first time, logging over 16,000 miles entirely by air and the occasional seaplane. Working as an unofficial spy, following upon Claire Booth's similar trip to South America, Blanche had been recruited by her acquaintance Sumner Wells, Under Secretary of State. Over six weeks in the summer, she scoured the continent, signing what would prove to be two great books to Knopf, a novel by the Brazilian Jorge Amado and a trilogy by the anthropologist Gilberto Freire. When she returned to the States, stopping in Washington to meet with Wells to deliver a secret report, she lunched with Henry and teased him for haughtily assuring her she'd find no masterpieces in South America. His dour mood did not lift. Then, in early November 1943, Blanche told him all about her recent brief trip to London. Henry, rarely jealous, was clearly envious of Blanche. Her flight to London on a C-47 had required her to travel as an American lieutenant colonel in case she was caught by the enemy. Instead of expressing his usual interest, Henry turned up his nose at what he considered the, quote, cheap, cheap tactics of current writers, generals and journalists both, interested in themselves instead of the soldiers. She quickly changed the subject. It wasn't until the next April, 1944, that Henry even made it to Blanche's new, now a year old, apartment. And even so, Henry was truculent when he finally got there. Probably it was the combination of dealing with his ambivalent wartime emotions, being German, and his dislike of Blanche's affair with Hubert Hoey, a suspect stock stock market broker, a man all of Blanche's friends really disliked. In addition, the affair was being conducted rudely in front of her husband, Blanche still hoping to win Alfred, though at this point, no one even knew what that meant. So that day on her sleek white couch, Henry treated Blanche to a diatribe. He was offended by Knopf's, quote, 
Little Book of Prayers, written by Generals Eisenhower and Patton, the latter having been in the news recently for cuffing a wounded soldier. He railed on declaring such trash to have ruined the country, as the war correspondents such as Scotty Reston had also done. Blanche defended her wartime writers, including Edmund Morrow, but as the discussion grew heated, she suddenly realized Henry no longer knew the leading war correspondents well, and he was sad. He was losing touch with the culture, even finding the GI Bill not entirely satisfactory. In addition to his fear that his long run as a great journalist was waning, Henry didn't like being caught between Blanche and Alfred. The affair she was having with Hubert Hoey lasting until Hoey left her for another woman in 1945. Henry had felt bad for Alfred, lonely, he said, without Blanche. It seems likely that Henry never knew that Alfred had physically beaten both Blanche and their son, Pat, throughout the years, according to accounts Pat Knopf gave several interviewers after his father was dead. Without a doubt, the Knopfs were on their best behavior as a couple when they were with Henry, and with Hubert Hoey gone, things were easier for their mutual friend again. Thus it was that they made a point of dining with Henry a few weeks after he covered the conventions. When Blanche had a few moments alone with her friend, she complained to him regarding the first of a three-part article in The New Yorker, which she'd eagerly awaited for months. The writer, Gregory uh, Jeffrey Hellman, Henry agreed, had made it seem as if Knopf meant only Alfred. Blanche hardly mentioned. Her work on African-American writers from Langston Hughes to James Baldwin, the books she had convinced William Shire, Scotty Reston, and Edmund Murrow to produce out of their World War II coverage, not even John Hersey's Hiroshima were mentioned, but Henry advised her to let it go. Any response would be convoluted, and she'd be forced to alienate Hellman, who might prove useful later. Reluctantly, she agreed. It was the last advice she took from her friend. When the next installment appeared, Blanche hardly read it. Weeks after sharing a meal in Philadelphia to discuss Henry's coverage of the Republican convention, a, sto- a stroke eviscerated the man Blanche had leaned on for 33 years. Along the way, talking, sometimes arguing with each other about writing, of course, but also over American weaknesses they both wished to scour and strengths they both meant to celebrate. Both Henry and Blanche held out for what they believed, becoming in the process two of the most influential Americans of the 20th century, though only one of them would be properly acknowledged. Henry had served her well, and she forged ahead as if he were always at her side. His final piece, printed in the Baltimore Sun of November 9, 
1948, was a column denouncing a law that prohibited a group of whites and blacks from playing tennis together at Druid Hill Park. Blanche must have cheered. Thank you. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention these uh, these photos. The left one, of course, is our man um, with uh, Blanche's small one of her small pets. She one after another died, and she got a new one. Um, and then on the right is is the um, what what her uh, 1925, and she was um, in she was in front of her stables, and her, with her stutz. Is that how you say it? And uh, she got it actually with with Minkin's help through exchanging advertising in the American Mercury for the car. So anyway, questions? Yes. Thank you. Um, at the beginning, you mentioned that they were unlikely friends, and I just wondered if you could expand on that. Well, she um, at times I, I don't adhere to this philosophy, but a lot of people thought she was kind of snooty and, um, you know, and wasn't interested in anybody who couldn't benefit her. And I, I never saw that. And I don't, I don't think he ever was that way. And so, so I guess I just was surprised that, that we could see them becoming friends because they're both in their personalities, obviously different but in their values, I think, very close. So I guess that's what I was saying, that um, in many ways they do seem quite contrary. But as you study them, you see why they would be such good friends. I'm coming. Very nice talk, thank you. There are probably eight or nine or ten biographies of Mencken that have been written, and seldom is Blanche mentioned. Alfred frequently, and her seldom. So it made makes one wonder until you your talk today whether with what was Mencken closer to Blanche than Alfred, or was or was all the business negotiations done exclusively with Alfred? There, in my mind, I've and certainly haven't read through all the other um, uh, biographies, but I've certainly looked at them, you know, and read sketchily through them. And uh, I, too, noticed how there was nothing about Blanche in most of them. Um, And I got these events and documents from the papers that he left and that she left. And I don't see how anybody could read them at the Ransom Library and um, in... um, not Houston, where is it? I'm so tired of it. Austin, good old Austin. But anyway, uh, if you spend a lot of time out there like I did, you see that they were very close and that Alfred and he were only socially close except for when uh, when Mencken went to his house and purchased to cheer him up when Blanche was gone. Uh, otherwise, it was always what the papers I saw were always Blanche and Minkin. I'm sorry, I'm, say, I'm reverting to that. It should say Blanche and Henry. 
or else, yeah. So, so I don't. I what I have been shocked at is in those biographies. I was actually worried because you know biographers get worried that they're going to see what they've already said said earlier. So I thought that I might find all these things I discovered in those biographies, and that's why I kept looking through them, thinking. Uh oh, you know, how can I say this is Maya inside if it's already here? And in fact, they just aren't, it's, she was left out. She was, and, and the evidence shows she should not have been in terms of sheer power of the, um, collection that she built. And so I, I find it astonishing, really. I guess it's naive on my part, but. a prohibition question. Oh. Um, I've heard that after the day prohibition ended, that Mencken was the first person in Baltimore to drink a beer. Is that true? I saw a, pic- a picture from the archives that said that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was true or not. Where's the voice coming from? Where's the person? Oh. It was like this weird thing. Not necessarily having to do with Mencken. In your studies, in your studies of Blanche, what did you find you really liked about her, and what did you find you really couldn't stand? That's a good question. When I started this biography. I was talking all about how mean Blanche could be. And my editor said, are you out of your mind? Nobody wants to read a biography that starts like this. Why don't you talk about something positive? And it was, you know, and it was only then that I realized I had even done it. Because to me, it was fascinating to see her nasty side, right? And so the nasty side, I'll tell you now first. Um, she could be imperious, and um, if somebody... Um, if somebody put her down, she would find something equally uh, appropriate to do to say to them or about them. She was not one to just take it, which I guess is why she got famous because she actually, or not famous but so successful because she actually stood it. And she was very small. She was um, five feet eight. I mean, no, a uh, four feet, four feet ten. I think four feet ten. And um, very tiny. She had a. She usually weighed about eighty-four pounds throughout her life, but that was a lot of that was because she had taken some diet pills, and um, they they did some bad things to her body, and she stopped eating and all this stuff. Yeah. So so she. My point is, she was really tiny versus his mass, and um, I only heard her. I only heard her say things about him, or it was implied that she said angry things to him and to uh, Carl Van Vechten because they made up names for her and used them with each other, especially the, the countess name. And that would imply that she had been imperious with them. So there was that fault. I'm sure she was. <laughs> and um, she, I, I have talked to a taxi cab driver in uh, L.A. You might have all read this story the book itself, um, he was famous for, uh, he became famous through this book about five years ago in, um, for 
driving people around, but then giving, getting them um, lovers in L.A. And uh, he had, do you remember the name of that book? Do you happen to remember that? Full, 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 full body. And uh, it, a lot of people in the, in, in the publishing industry said, this is impossible, I don't believe that. But I went out to L.A. to interview him because in the middle of the book, all about movie stars, I mean, that's all it was about, and their lovers and so forth, and who he pimped for. In the middle of the book is mentioned Alfred and Blanche Knopf. And when I mentioned that to my editor and to the publicist, they said, no way. I said, I'm going out there to find out. So it was just too good a piece, you know, to drop. And it was so odd that it was in there, right? It was very odd. So I went there and heard that indeed uh, he had Scotty, the man's name is Scotty, had pimped for both Alfred and his wife by taking them from the airport when they would come out to visit their relatives in L.A. or more book to dealing with more books. And without the two knowing of this, they each employed him. So Alfred would hire him to get... Scotty said he remembers girls to look at, and there was also an occasional boy and girl to have sex with. Then he said to me, uh, so did Blanche, I said, did Blanche know about this? And he said, oh, no, they didn't know about it. It was at different times, and they stayed at different hotels, Beverly Hills and what's the other big Beverly Hills? Um, Exactly, Bel Air. And he said, so I would just, you know, he said, I'm assuming because there's no indication that they didn't know about each other. And so he became, he didn't get um, people for Blanche. He became her lover. And um, he was, in fact, she really liked him. She, he was gentle. And when I, I didn't know how to interview him. You know, it's, <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know what I should, what a good interviewer would ask now, and I, I just, and so I said, um, "Well, um, was she nice to be with?" I mean, <laughs> and so he said, um, "She was very gentle, and uh, she was very gentle, and she loved being with me, and she, um, she had, uh, she really was good to me. She would send me every year." a big box of the recent Knopf books. <laughs> and, um, and every time I saw her, she would, you know, we resume our relationship. And I said, I just can't believe that her husband didn't know about it. He said, not to my knowledge. So anyway, um, that was, to me, an interesting story. You never expect these things, right? And, and so that's how she, yeah, that's how she... Uh, you did so. So that's how you do. Oh, well, just think though. Couldn't one of them have seen the other? You know, when I guess they knew when the other one was going to be there. Well, that too. That too. Yeah. But that was. If somebody asked me what the most surprising thing in the book was, I would definitely say that. I didn't expect that one. Yes. Oh, Scotty. 
Scotty was very young. I think Scotty was in his 40s at that point, or maybe even earlier, 30s, and she was in her 60s. So, <laughs> yes. Isn't it funny that it hasn't been done and that the people who started, I mean, some people started it and um, they they helped me with this one. They just said they couldn't stand it at the end. I mean, they really, no, some 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 very good, some well, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, you know, they just, they didn't like him at all and they got tired of it. They paid back the advance and everything. I was just wondering... I'm here. Oh, hi. Hi. I've read your book. It's so wonderful. I recommend it to everybody. I was just wondering if Knopf ever published um, anything by Mencken. Oh, everything. Everything. Oh, they they were his publisher. Uh, Yeah, he was their publisher once after the first book or so when they weren't connected yet. My question Are you asking sexually, you mean? Uh, well, actually, no. Oh. <laughs> uh, but let's go there. Now, okay. Now, I, I thought surely, uh, in a, I mean, I, I met in the book, you, you doubtless oh. talk about Blanche's friends who were women, just as we've learned about her friends who were men. Right. Did she have good friends? And as a feminist, did she find other women who were like-minded? Right. Friends? Good question. Yes, yes, she did, and um, I'm try- I'm sorry that I don't remember some of the names, but but for instance, um, a woman who was connected to um, um, well, I won't even say that because I can't remember part of it, but she did have good women friends who who would have been people I would have liked to hang out with. So it wasn't like they were crazy. Uh, she loved Elizabeth Bishop, you know, the writer. Part Bowen. I'm sorry. She probably liked Bishop too, but but yeah, Elizabeth Bowen was one of her best, her closest friends, and she would go to Ireland to see her, and then when Bowen had to sell the property, she would have her over more and more to purchase where she had the country house, and um, she and she really loved being with her. I mean, there are a lot of pictures of them sitting together in the in the park and talking. Um, and so she was one of the best friends. And then at the end, there were many people in between. But And she actually liked and was liked by Heifetz's wife. You wouldn't think, but they, they, they kind of, everybody knew what was going on. And so Heifetz eventually got divorced anyway from, from this, I'm sorry, from uh, Florence. And so nobody seemed to care. And she got very close to her. Um, somebody else she was close to is Muriel Spark, you know, who's a pretty strong writer and strong personality. And, um, you know, she, she had, she had some, um, spats with Muriel. But at the end, you know, Muriel, I think, I think strong women were drawn to Blanche. And, um, that would make sense, right? Who, she, who else would, would be. And, um, but, but even, I'm trying to think who, uh, some of the, who's the one, Fanny, um, what's, 
Willa Cather for sure. But Willa Cather was kind of uh, at the beginning of, of Knopf, was one of the instrumental people in terms of f- financing it through her through her patronage because she decided she didn't like the other company she'd been with. She she didn't get enough attention. And so when she went to Knopf, she called first and then went in to see Blanche. And Blanche said, oh, we will take such good care of you. She and she did. She would go buy her flowers, or you know, she, you know, if you read somebody, a writer, and you see what they want, and you really want the writer, then wouldn't you do that? And uh, it's not done as often today, though. It's it's not done as often. And this will be our last question. Hi, I just have a question. She was a contemporary, somewhat of. Eleanor and Alice Roosevelt, correct? Yes. Well, did is there any in your in your what you were looking for when you went through various things? Did you find anything of her, any kind of a relationship or a, anything she had to do, or she did she know them? Did she? Yes, she was at a wedding. The one I'm trying to think of. I'm sorry, I just can't. Um, with Al, with uh, Roosevelt, mm-hmm. Alice Roosevelt, about seven people were sitting in a circle, and Blanche was one of them. And Roosevelt was one, and um, the others that I can't remember. If I had my book, I'd tell you who they are. And um, I didn't find a lot of evidence that they were spending their time together, the two of them. But I did see them in the same social circles. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, Eleanor was very um, active at the time, and Alice and she were kind of opposites, but almost the same in some ways. Well, of course, Eleanor Roosevelt was um, published some by Knopf, so, oh. and they, they, uh, they used to, they, at one time, Eleanor Roosevelt came in to publish a Christmas book with them, and they both raced out of their offices, both, um, Knopf, both um, Blanche and Alfred, to see who could get to her first to <laughs> sign the t- <laughs> I've always thought that an interesting image to imagine they run into the halls to see. Hello, Mrs. Roosevelt. Um, So thank you very much, Laura. Thank you all for being here. We have books out in the hall, and Laura will be there to sign them and talk to you more about maybe some other questions you have. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.